So good morning, everybody. Um, we have uh, a returning faculty member uh, giving the seminar this morning, David Allison, who was, until he left Columbia, I guess, in 2001, a sort of um, medical psychology uh, stationed primarily at St. Louis Roosevelt. That's why in the audience you see a fair number of his previous associates. I've had the pleasure of working with David on a number of uh, topics over the past 15 or 20 years uh, and can attest to the fact that this is a very interesting individual, something of a polymath. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. In any event, David got his undergraduate degree at Vassar at a time, I think, when there weren't necessarily that many men there, so this was all, all showed a certain amount of prescience right off the bat and then went to Hofstra for his PhD in psychology, and from there had two postdoctoral fellowships. One was done at uh, Johns Hopkins University under circumstances which we were discussing last night at dinner, which ended up rendering him without a mentor at uh, uh, Johns Hopkins, or at least an official mentor. And this seemed to work just fine for David. I don't think it would work that well for everybody, but David managed to really do some very excellent work there by making contacts with a whole variety of people at Hopkins. Then he came to St. Luke's Roosevelt for another second postdoctoral fellowship, which I doubt was any more seriously mentored than the first one. <laughs> also went to some very high levels of productivity. And then in 2001, as I mentioned, to our regret of certainly mine, went to the uh, University of Alabama School of Public Health, where he has risen to now um, a position of an endowed uh, university professorship, essentially, and um, a deanhood of science in the School of Public Health. David had his work, which I'll describe in a moment, has been recognized by a whole variety of awards, including from the Obesity Society, the Young Investigator Award from the International Association of Obesity, or the uh, Andre Mayer Award from TOPS, the top Scientific Award, and is currently the holder of a very rare type of grant, which is the um, one of the NIH director's transformative grants, which has a title somewhat similar to the topic that he's going to describe here, so I assume some of that work will be mentioned, but David is a holder of one of these very difficult to get grants, but in turn recognizes his productivity and somewhat uh, diverse areas of interest. So. David, as you will see, is very interested in statistics, he's very interested in genetics, and I would say one of the striking characteristics of his work, which I was thinking about it this morning, which is published in some 400 plus publications, so it'll take you a while to get through this, um, is like uh, a Rubik's Cube. When you look at a Rubik's Cube, at least when I look at it, it's very hard to figure out how to get the pieces come together in the pattern that they're supposed to represent. And David has a great skill at this. So he can look at what, to me, seem rather disparate items or pieces and can put these together in a way which really uh, helps to make sense and juxtaposes ideas that, uh, at least to me, wouldn't have occurred uh, without his help. And I think this is one of the great strengths of his, of his work. His professorship is the Kelley uh, Professorship. And I'm assuming that this name does not come from an Alabama native by the name of Kelley, but is named for the famous statistician, astronomer, uh, mathematician, Adolf Kelley, who was uh, operating in the early 19th century, really enormous contributions, great interest in trying to apply what were then decent statistical techniques. And David is holding a professorship, which I'm pretty sure was named after this individual. Ketley, as you may know, was the progenitor of the idea of the weight-to-height ratio, which we, which actually Ansel Keys denominated the body mass index. 
So I think David really represents this kind of fusion of different areas of thought and investigation, and I think you're likely to see that in his presentation this morning. So David, it's a great privilege and honor to have you here, and uh, thank you for coming. Well, thank you, Rudy, for that really wonderful and kind introduction. It's truly a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be back home. Um, Rudy's right. The professorship is named after Kate Lay. And um, Kate Lay did study very broadly. And these are the kind of people that I've always admired. He, he studied under Laplace, who was working on the normal distribution alongside people like House. And he applied his work to thinking about humans and thinking about planetary bodies and so on. Uh, I haven't quite gotten to planetary bodies, but I do like to study things broadly. And that's the sort of perspective I'll take today. Uh, Rudy's also correct that this perspective will draw on some of the ideas that we used to get our transformative R01 grant funded by the NIH. And uh, I won't tell you a lot of data from that since it's really just started. We don't have a lot of data yet. But I'll tell you a lot of the background thinking. And this will be a very broad sort of overview with the idea of provoking some uh, ideas for you. I want to offer this disclosure slide. I won't bother read it for you, but my email address is at the bottom. And if you're welcome to email me, and I'll send you the slides if you wish, or you have them here at uh, Columbia, and you can get them from Ying or Rudy. I'm also going to gloss very quickly, in the interest of time, over some of the slides that I have here. And I think some of them are useful, sort of, for filling out the whole story. But as I said, in the interest of time, I won't always go through all of them. And so feel free to you know, get the slides at your discretion and look at those further. All right, so let's start with some time-honored observations. This is Confucius. And Confucius at one point said, we are not troubled with fears of poverty, but are troubled with fears of lack of equality and wealth. In other words, it is not want of things per se that often leads to trouble with poverty. It is having less things than other people have. And I think this is a fundamental idea that we see in disparities. Maybe the key aspect of really what makes disparity so problematic and why we see that people on the lower socioeconomic end of the status scale in, in developed countries have so much more health problems has perhaps less to do with some of the material things that they don't have and more to do with having less than others. And that's something that we try to revisit a little bit through this talk. And here's the second time-honored observation that sort of gives the other cornerstone of this set of ideas I'll try to weave together. And this comes from Shakespeare's Henry IV, in which Shakespeare has Henry pictured here, speak to Falstaff with this great abdominal obesity pictured here. And Henry says, leave gormandizing, know that the grave doth gape thrice wider for thee than for other men. In other words, the grave is gaping for you. You are so big, implying the known association even then between obesity and earlier mortality. So here, I'm going to start with what arguably could be the ending slide, and I'll come back to this at the end. This is, you know, sort of a little bit tongue-in-cheek, our grand unified theory. And what we've got here is the idea that low social status, and as I've emphasized with the Confucius quote, what I mean here very much is relatively low social status, not absolutely low social status. In essence, disparity leads to perceived energetic uncertainty. In other words, feeling like you're on the bottom of the social totem pole leads you to feel uncertain about your energy supply. In other words, where your next meal is coming from. This uncertainty doesn't necessarily have to be at a conscious or cognitive level, but it may be there. And that that, in turn, increases one's seeking and storage of energy. In other words, to the extent that one can, then one goes out and finds more energy and stores it. And that could be as a squirrel, you store more nuts in the tree, or as a person, you store more fat in your adipose tissue and more cans of soup in your cupboard. Furthermore, how successful you are at that will depend on how rich the energy environment is. So if there really isn't much energy in the environment for you to easily get, your seeking and storage may not have much effect. It may have a little bit of effect of increasing your stores a bit. And if you're really near the threshold of starvation, that may keep you alive. So in an energy-poor environment, this thing may have one sign, that's why you see here a plus-minus sign on this path. That is, whether seeking and storing more energy increases or decreases your aging or longevity, 
may depend on whether you live in an energy poor environment or an energy rich environment. In a truly energy poor environment, this may help you survive. In an energy rich environment, like ours, this may help you become obese and therefore decrease your longevity. And finally, and here's sort of the most, you might say, controversial part, we're proposing that perceived energetic uncertainty has a direct effect on the fundamental process of aging itself or longevity, really, you might say, senescence. In other words, the idea is that if you're in bad times, a good evolutionary strategy would be to slow down your process of aging, maybe slow down reproduction, and wait until better times to reproduce. Now, this invites a lot of questions. The most obvious question is, can animals actually do that? Is it possible to actually choose to slow down your rate of senescence? And if you could do that, why don't we do it all the time? And there are people have answers for that, maybe because it's too energetically demanding, but these answers are not necessarily fully satisfying. But we're going to put this in as, as a hypothesis, not as a known fact, in part of our model. And this is sort of this grand unified model that we're proposing, and it suggests that this may be a key factor we eventually want to think about focusing on. So let me now lay really the background for that kind of grand unified model. Let's start off with socioeconomic status and relationship, uh, and obesity. What Most of you know Mickey Stunker. He's one of my heroes, one of the great men of the field of obesity. And in the 1960s, he got involved in what's called the Midtown Manhattan Study. And this was one of the first studies of the relationship between socioeconomic status and obesity that was published. And what he showed was that the proportion of people who were obese depended, and this was, I think, this slide is in women, depended yeah, on the socioeconomic status of the women. And so women of lower socioeconomic status were more likely to be obese, and women of higher socioeconomic status were less likely to, obese, to be obese. This was the first big observation of that. <clears throat> they went on with Jeff Sobel from Cornell in 1989 to do an early systematic review of this, and found 144 studies at the time, many more since then, which revealed a strong inverse relationship among women in developed societies. The relationship is inconsistent for men and children. So this is actually an important point that I'm going to gloss over in the remainder of the talk, but in fact, probably merits some further thinking. We often very glibly speak about the relationship between obesity and socioeconomic status, particularly when public health kind of advocacy talks are given. And there's this presumption that obesity is preferentially a disease of the poor, or preferentially afflicted. This is actually not quite true in most cases. It is true among adult white women. That is very consistent that in adult white women, more greater socioeconomic status is associated with less obesity. In other racial groups, in other ages, in other genders, it is not necessarily true. All right, but I'm just going to go with that there's a relationship, and I'm going to ask, is the relationship causal? That is, does lower socioeconomic status itself cause one to be more obese? Well, in an ideal world, what you'd want to do is get a group of children at a very young age, and you'd want to randomly assign them to either grow up in high socioeconomic status households or low socioeconomic status households, and then you have a nice randomized experiment, and you can see the effect. And unfortunately, you say, well, that's not ethical, right? We can't do that. Well, in fact, we actually have done it already. It's called adoption. Now, you might argue this is not a pure randomized experiment, and of course you'd be right. But it approximates a randomized experiment to the extent that we think the way in which people are placed into adoptive families doesn't depend upon their propensity toward obesity or their family's propensity toward obesity. So we got data from a number of studies, and I'm going to show you I'm going to focus on this one. This one's called the Holt Study. The Holt Study involves Korean children adopted very early in life by American families. They're raised by the American families who vary in socioeconomic status. Some of the families are high SES, some low SES. We then can look at the correlation between the SES of the rearing family and the subsequent BMI of the offspring as they grow up. And what we would expect to see, if it's causal, is that that correlation was just the same as it is for the biological children being reared by those same families. What we see here, this is the correlation or slope. These are negative numbers, it's about negative 0.25, for the adopted offspring. And here's for the biological offspring, about negative 0.45. So this 
is almost exactly half of this. Both are statistically significant. So it suggests that there is likely some causal effect. But interestingly, the association we see between SES and obesity is probably only about 50% due to causation and probably about 50% due to some other factors, perhaps some biological genetic connection. You can break that connection by controlling for the parent's BMI. And when you do that, what you see is that the adoptive offspring correlation doesn't change at all. But in fact, now the correlation between the parent's SES and the biological children's BMI is cut in half and now is almost exactly equal to the adoptive offsprings. It's also adding up that about 50% of that correlation is probably some common genetic diathesis and about 50% is probably a causal effect of something about low SES households influencing the BMIs of the people raised in those households. So David, those, are, those are the adoptive parental BMIs? Correct. <clears throat> the BMIs of the parents who adopted the children. Now you actually can do an even better sort of, this is a true randomized controlled trial. And I think this one's a great one when we hear about advocates of certain uh, public health procedures who say, we can't do randomized experiments. You can't expect those kinds of evidence from us. This is a randomized experiment of assigning people who live in very poor neighborhoods to have the opportunity to move to a less poor neighborhood. This is called the Moving to Opportunity, funded by the Department of Housing and Urban Development in the United States. And they randomize people to either not get nothing or to get these housing vouchers. There are different kinds of housing vouchers, which for our purposes are not very important, so I won't go through the details. But these housing vouchers allow them to move to less poor neighborhoods. And what you see, after they've moved to less poor neighborhoods, those randomly assigned to those groups had a lower probability of having a BMI greater than 35. You see the difference here. It wasn't a huge effect, but it was there. Quite interesting. And it was not easily accounted for by some of the usual suspects. So when you say, oh, it must be the built environment. Let's count the number of parks in there or the number of stores of a certain type. It wasn't easily accounted for that. So there seems to be something about being assigned to live in a quote-unquote better neighborhood that has an effect, but it's not clear exactly what it is. Well, maybe it's just money. I mean, effect effectively, you're giving people more money. If low socioeconomic status leads to obesity simply because of lack of money, this essentially gave people more money for a better housing in some way. What if we just gave people more money then? Then they should be able to buy more healthy food and they'd do better, right? So this was done with very poor families in Mexico. And uh, researchers gave the women head of households one of three things, either a control condition or extra market basket of healthy food or extra money to buy healthy food and instructions to do so. And what they found, this is relative to the controls. So relative to the controls, um, women given a food basket gained more weight and women given cash gained more weight. So this was opposite to what you might predict if you think that just not having enough cash, not having enough ability to buy stuff is the driver of that connection between low socioeconomic status and obesity. Give people more cash and more money seems that they buy and eat more food, at least under these circumstances. So what's going on here? Well, one interpretation of this apparent disparity between, on the one hand, the moving to opportunity study showing you give people this better living environment sort of, in some way, make them richer, that you get less obesity. But here, you literally make them richer by putting cash in their hand, you get more obesity. Is that perhaps moving your entire household to a different community changed the way you felt about your place in the world, about yourself, about your community, whereas just getting a little extra cash didn't lead to those feelings about long-term stability or changing perception. So is it perhaps the perception of energetic uncertainty in the face of an actual surface, an excess supply of metabolizable energy, a mechanism of causation between low socioeconomic status and obesity? Let's take a look at this slide from my friend Tim Navy's picture in the lower right-hand corner. And as part of our caloric restriction work, Tim, Tim took some mice and he just restricted them very little bit. This is sometimes what we like to use in the control group. So they're not truly at lib. We get a, a more tight study by just restricting them 5%. This is a, a technique we learned from Rick Weintrick at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. 
And in just exploring it a little bit, Tim took some mice, ordinary C57 black 6J mice, and restricted their food intake just 5%. And you'd say, okay, give them a little less food, they should all lose weight, right? If we all just ate a little bit less, we, we'd have less fat, right? So this is weeks in the study. Here's body fat. The black bars are the animals who've had their energy intake restricted, and the white bars are the animals that are eating ad lib. And what you see is there's more fat gain in the animals whose energy has been restricted. Now, when I first showed this at the NIH, somebody said to me, are you sure you don't have the labels mixed up? Well, no, the labels aren't mixed up. We've replicated this. Now, this doesn't happen in every age. It doesn't happen in every mouse. And it doesn't happen with every degree of caloric restriction. And other people have gotten results like this, too, particularly Tom Johnson at the University of Colorado Boulder. It depends on the strain of mouse, the age you look at it, the degree of restriction. Restrict calories enough, and you will get fat loss. I mean, the laws of thermodynamics guarantee it. But restrict calories a little, and it's not a guarantee, because the organism is an adaptive system. Systems adapt. And this is, again, why we need to bring that biological thinking into our discussions of public health and not have the kind of simplistic thinking we often see, which is, you know, I put a sign up by the escalator, this many people take the these stairs and not the escalator, and I calculate out this much weight loss. That's silly, because it assumes a non-adaptive system. You've got to take into account that systems adapt. So I'd like you to imagine that you are the president of, the, of Columbia University, and that it's 2007, 2008, and the stock market crashes, and your endowment is now worth much less than it used to be, and you're scared. And the board of trustees calls, and they say, what are you going to do? Well, what you're going to do is protect that endowment. And how are you going to protect that endowment? Well, you've got to decrease energy expenditure. What's energy? Cash. What's your biggest source of expenditures in any big organization? The workforce. So you're probably going to cut the workforce, which is what many universities did, what many corporations did at that time. We colloquially call the workforce is the muscle. And that's exactly what the mice do. Their energy supply has been threatened. And it's smaller here, but statistically significant. They cut the skeletal muscle. Because they can't afford it, they reduce energy. So I can always explain these things in retrospect. I didn't predict this result. I wish I did, but, uh, but afterwards I can always have a good explanation for any result you find. It's not so good, easy to predict going forward. And so now what we need to do is say, if I'm right about this, let's see if we can do some other experiments and see if that holds up. And that's what we'll be doing in the future. Is this true in males too, or only females? I think it depends on, again, the strain of the species. It's true in males some of the time. I don't know about in black six. These are some results in birds. And birds, you've all heard the phrase pecking order, so it comes from birds. It's a pecking order, and it indicates the social dominance hierarchy of birds. To be on top of the pecking order is to be the dominant bird, bottom the subordinate bird. And it turns out that in many social birds, those birds at the bottom of the social hierarchy tend to get fatter than those at the top of the social hierarchy. And this occurs mostly when food is a little scarce. So if you make food a little more difficult to get for birds, they get fatter. Right? Making it a little more less convenient to get food doesn't make them thinner, it makes them fat. Again, if you starve them, of course they get thinner. And this effect is primarily there among birds low in the social hierarchy. Now let's talk about rats. This is Randy Sakai from the University of Cincinnati. And what Randall showed was that if he put rats in a visual burrow system, hence VDS, it's kind of like the habit trails we all had when we were kids, that they form dominance hierarchies also. And then he feeds them ad lib, high fat, high palatable food. So it's interesting now because in a strict sense, there's no economy here, right? Food is unlimited. All the animals get as much food as they want. So there's no socioeconomic status differences, but there are social status differences. And that social status is a good predictor of how fat the animal gets. So when, after a period of restriction, when allowed to eat ad lib in a recovery phase, it is the subordinate animals that gain the most fat, not the dominant animals. And this is a very replicable, reliable result. It's also very replicable, reliable in mice. This is Alessandro Bartolucci from um, University of Minnesota. And he's a collaborator on this transformative R01 we have. And this is from one of his recent papers. And I won't go through the whole thing, but what you see here, for example, 
is that even on roughly equivalent food intake when you have dominant and subordinate animals, it is the subordinate animals that gain the most body weight, right? This is more than this, and the most body fat. So social subordination in the presence of a high fat unlimited diet, and even in the presence of a high fat diet that's matched for calories, leads to more body weight, more body fat, and more sort of metabolic syndrome type symptoms in mice and in rats. What about primates? Here we don't have good uh, experimental evidence, but correlational evidence. And again, clearly there are dominance hierarchies among primates and primate colonies. And here too, we tend to see that, for example, calories consumed is higher in subordinate animals than in dominant animals on a high fat diet. So consistently across species, we see this idea that it's the subordinate animals team to seek out more food, and even at equivalent calorie intake, seem to store more food as body fat. So let's go back to thinking about socioeconomic status. And often when you read sort of superficial epidemiologic reports, socioeconomic status is often treated as though it's equivalent to self-reported income put in bins of $10,000 that made less than $10,000, $10,000 to $20,000 and so on. And that's not socioeconomic status. That's very crudely measured self-reported income. If you think about the traditional definition of socioeconomic status, coming from sociology and psychology, it talks about an individual's place in a social group based upon multiple factors, only one of which is income. And I use this as an example. What is the Pope's socioeconomic status? Well, think about the Pope's income. That's according to this quotation. The Pope does not and has never received a salary. But the Pope has a hell of a socioeconomic status. And, you know, indicated by this great hat. And so, um, this shows the real disparity between thinking of socioeconomic status just as income. And I think we've got to get away from that. So let's think about it, perhaps even in a subjective way. Nancy Adler has pioneered this technique of this uh, ladder. So you give people a picture of a ladder, and the ladder has 11 rungs on it. You say, circle the rung on the ladder that you think indicates your position in society with respect to your social status. And a person circles the thing. Higher numbers mean more social status. And we'll call that subjective social status. And then they ask them their income, and we'll call that objective social status. And what you see here is the correlation between objective SES versus subjective SES with either BMI or waist hip ratio. And these are negative correlations, as we expect. But the correlations are stronger for subjective social status than for objective. Now, there are at least two interpretations of this. One is that it's actually not how much money you have. It's how you feel about your place in society that matters, which is the idea I'm advancing. Of course, there is another possibility, which is just asking people their income is even a really bad measure, even of just their objective economic status. You really might want to ask accumulated wealth. So you might say to somebody with a very big trust fund, what's your salary? And they may say zero. But they have a big trust fund, and they're very influential, and they're on all kinds of boards and panels and national committees and so on. OK, let's look at some experimental data in humans that look back at the idea of social status and defeat and how it affects things. So people have done both correlational studies and randomized experiments in which they've looked at people and they've assigned them to have their, their football or their soccer team win in a match, or they've just observed in a sports bar whose soccer or football team wins in a match. And they've done things like measure the testosterone of those people afterwards, and I'll have a slide here, but the testosterone of the people rooting for the losing team goes down and the people rooting for the winning team is higher. And they've measured food intake. And food intake goes up when your team loses. And it's true observationally, and it's true experimentally. So social defeat, at least this version of vicarious social defeat, leads to more food intake. Food stamps. Turns out that people who get food stamps now called SNAP are more likely to be obese than people who don't get food stamps. And this has led to, lot, led to many questions. And the question is, do food stamps promote obesity? It turns out, as far as we can tell, probably not. But the people who choose to get food stamps are preferentially obese, even among people who are eligible to get food stamps. 
So if you look at people who are eligible to get food stamps, some choose them to get them and some don't. Those who choose to get them are more obese than those who don't choose to get them, suggesting the possibility that lack of confidence in one's ability to get energy leads to more obesity. It then turns out that once they're on the food stamp program, they are less likely, they become less obese. So food stamps don't seem to promote obesity. People who get laid off from jobs tend to gain weight, but people who haven't been laid off but are in jobs in which the probability of being laid off goes up also gain weight. So just having your job security threatened, not having your actual income reduced, is enough to produce weight gain. Idea again, insecurity. How might we look at this in an experimental model? Well, we might look at animals on differential reinforcement schedules in they're rewarded with a food pellet for pressing a lever or poking a, a button with their nose or something. And we might look at situations in which they reliably get the food pellet versus in which the number of lever presses or nose pokes or whatever is random. So on average, it's the same amount of lever presses or nose pokes, but it's not predictable. And it turns out that in those situations, you get more lever presses and nose pokes in animals that are on a variable schedule than on a fixed schedule. So these numbers are a little higher than these numbers. This comes from Neil Rowland, and this was again one of the observations that got me thinking about this stuff for our Transformative R01. He's one now a collaborator on, a transform, on the Transformative R01. He's, his early experiments in this confirm greater weight gain, even with equivalent food intake, among animals being fed more, on more variable schedules of reinforcement. What if we look at disparity within countries? It turns out that if you look, excuse me, across countries, if you look at the gross national product as an indicator of the wealth of the country, wealthier countries tend to have more obesity in general. If you look at something called the Gini index, Gini index is something economists use, it's kind of like a variability or a variance. So if all, if everybody has the exact same level of wealth, then the Gini index is very low. If there's huge disparities in wealth, the Gini index is very high. Turns out the higher the Gini index, the more obesity in the country. If you control for the Gini index, then GNP no longer is associated with obesity level. If you control for the GNP, the Gini index still is associated with obesity level. So it really looks like within countries, disparity is a much stronger correlate of obesity level than other aspects of the economics of that country. These kinds of observations led um, this English uh, investigator Ryers to comment on and do some work on the connection, perhaps neurologically, between the parts of the brain we use for food intake and for money. And a number of studies show that these are semi-interchangeable. If you make people hungry, they tend to be less generous if you give them games that involve the opportunity to be generous. If you, you can sort of get people to switch these things back and forth. And she concluded by saying, Perhaps in present-day society, the attraction to money is so powerful that people who, relatively speaking, not relative, fail in their quest for more money become frustrated. Accordingly, as financial and caloric resources are exchangeable, they might tend to appease their desire for money by consuming more calories than is healthy. So we see this coming up over and over again. This is a fun slide. I'll let you read it for yourself. I won't go into it at the moment. Um, now let's jump to the longevity piece. There's clearly a causal relationship between caloric restriction and longevity. This is an old slide from Rick Weindruck, and it shows that at least to a point, you get a dose-response relationship between fewer calories and greater longevity. So here are control animals. I think these are mice. Yeah. And then what you see is um, animals restricted a little bit, restricted a little more, and so on and so on. And roughly the more you restrict them, the longer they live, to a point. And again, this does vary with uh, age, sex, species, strain of the animal. But it has been shown in yeast rotifers, water fleas, nematodes, flies, spiders, fish, hamsters, rats, mice, and dogs. Now this is from work we did with Joe Vaselli. This work was done here at the New York Obesity Research Center. We asked the question, well what happens not if we prevent obesity early in life with caloric restriction? What happens if we let the animals become obese and then we restrict them and make them lose weight? Is that still good? Does that lead to greater lifespan? The answer is yes, at least if you're a spray dog rat. And it didn't matter what the sex of the animal was, 
and it didn't matter what the diet was. These are animals who become obese and stay obese their whole life. These are animals who keep lean their whole life. And these two lines are the animals that we let become very fat and obese, and then we restrict them back down to normal levels, and they regain most of the lost lifespan if we do that relatively early in life. So this suggests, at least in animals, that if one is obese, losing that weight recovers some of the lost lifespan. Now what about in primates? Does caloric restriction lead to greater lifespan in primates? To the best of my knowledge, there are two and only two randomized experiments testing this hypothesis uh, going on in the world. One is at the University of Wisconsin-Madison under Rick Weindruck. The other is at the National Institute of Aging under Julie Madison. Mark Beasley and I at UAB are lucky enough to be the statisticians for both of those projects. And this is from a paper came out in Science 2009. And what you have here, this is a control monkey. This is a calorically restricted monkey matched for age. And you can see how much better and younger this monkey looks. So let's go beyond just pictures. Let's show you some data. Here's age. Here's survival percent. Right, Everybody's alive at the beginning and they start dropping off. This is the control group. Here's the restricted group. They're not dropping off as quickly in terms of age-related mortality. And that's basically mortality when we've thrown out things like anesthesia-related deaths, accident-related deaths, other things like that. Here we get a statistically significant result. If we look at total mortality, we don't. I can tell you that the study is ongoing and these things continue to separate. They're not quite statistically significantly different yet, but they seem to be going in that direction. So this got a lot of fanfare. We were very excited about it. But remember, I said there were two studies. Here's the other one. This is from the National Institute of Aging. And here what we see is, here are the females, here are the males. And we see no difference between restricted and controls. And we don't understand why that is. We have some hypotheses. The difference between this study, one of the neat things about being a statistician for both studies, is we have the raw data from both, so we can put them together and test them. The difference between the results of this study and the other study are statistically significant. We don't know, but we think it might be the diet. The diet in Wisconsin is a tech lab, laboratory diet that's relatively high in sucrose. This diet at NIA is more of a, you might say, a whole foods diet, um, much lower in sucrose. So what Rafa de Cabo at the NIA is doing right now is he's basically ground up the diets, turned them into mouse pellets, and now he's running a two-by-two two study in mice. So it'll be restricted, not restricted, Wisconsin diet, NIA diet, and we'll see if we can explain it that way. But right now, I don't think we can give an unequivocal answer to whether caloric restriction prolongs life in primates. You think it's plausible that under some circumstances it does, but it may not under all circumstances. Okay. Is a possible mechanism of the effect of caloric restriction on longevity the energetic uncertainty induced by longevity, in a, by caloric restriction? In other words, is it because you feel calorically restricted that you get the effect? Is it being hungry, loosely speaking, that gives you the effect? They're very nervous with Harry Kissel, if anybody is asking questions. Harry's going to say, what do you mean by hunger? I don't know what I mean by hunger. I, I hope somebody knows what I mean. Um, well, I don't think hunger is a necessary condition because we can see from this work by Nir Barzala that he was kind enough to invite us to participate in that we can get caloric restriction-like effects by reducing fat mass, in this case, omental fat in the rat through surgical removal. Um, so here's calorically restricted animals, visceral fat removed animals, atherine. We get a reduction in mortality rate, or increase in lifespan in these animals. It's not as good as caloric restriction, but it's about halfway or a quarter of the way there. But um, that's without restricting their intake. Now, I don't know, maybe if you remove an animal's visceral fat, it feels hungry. So I can't tell you that for sure. Uh, and so maybe this, these are hungry animals, and maybe that is part of the effect. But it's certainly not from caloric restriction per se. Now, let's take a look at this, these data, which suggest that hunger, if it's not a necessary condition, might be a sufficient condition to produce some of the effects of caloric restriction. These are Drosophila results from Scott Pletcher, who's also part of this transforming model one we have. And what Scott showed first here is that animals fed ad lib on a, a very rich, rich caloric medium die the earliest, 
Animals that are calorically restricted live the longest, nothing new there. But here what he does is he, take these, he takes these flies, and what he does here is he puts them in this cage, and they can smell the rich food, but there's a screen, so they can't get to it. So now they're constantly smelling the rich food, but don't get to eat it. And it turns out that some of the effect of caloric restriction goes away. They now only live half as long as the calorically restricted animals. So this led one, and there's similar results in C. elegans, so it led one off in a quick. Nonetheless, the depressing message from C. elegans and Drosophila is clear. If you want to live longer, eat much less, and don't enjoy it. <laughs> now these are some very new data from Scott. And he's done this as part of uh, our grant. And what he's done is he's further looked at these perceptual aspects. And here he brought in some aspects of sex. And, and I'm still studying these results myself and trying to understand them. So some of you may know as much or more about them as I do. But he's done this very complex experiment where he puts male flies. And this is sort of like this weird men's prison experiment. He's got male flies, or no female flies. But he takes some of the male flies and he alters them genetically so that they put off female pheromones. And then he puts them all together. So no actual mating is occurring, because he doesn't want that as a confound. But some of them are perceiving female scents in the environment, and some are not. And it turns out that you get different uh, effects. So lifespan is shorter in those flies who have conspecifics exhibiting female pheromones. And amount of time that you can survive during starvation is very different. So somehow, sensing, I'm trying to put an explanation, sensing that this is a good environment for mating leads you to not be able to live as long in the face of starvation. And it suggests this kind of trade-off between reproduction and health, this kind of life strategy idea that I said before. When it's time to, when it's not a good time to mate, turn down your rate of aging, and live longer until better times. If it's a good time to mate, live fast, die young. And so this sort of seems to be the idea here that's picked up in this science paper. Now what about feeding every other day? This is kind of interesting because now you've heard probably these five and two diet plans and alternate day fasting and so on. Is there any benefit to this? Well, it turns out, again, varies by, by sex, by age, by strain of the mouse. But at least if you take some mice, C57 black 6 males at a certain age, here are some results from an old paper by Don Ingram and Ken Goodrick. And what you see is that, on average, you feed them every other day, the mice learn to compensate so that roughly, over time, their body weights are similar. They're not identical, but they're similar. And they eat about the same amount on average. But what you see is that those fed every other day live longer than those not. And so this led people like Eric Rabusin to actually put himself on every other day feeding along with the people in his lab for 30 days. And he always likes to comment, he said, my wife told me never again after he did it. Um, it was obviously very difficult. Those people did lose weight, but they had lots of beneficial effects on metabolic profile. So suggesting again the possibility that hunger might be important. So we tried to say what happens with humans, or what might happen in an analog to a human situation, with longer periods of weight loss and regain. These are hypothetical data just to indicate our design. So we have a sort of sentinel group of animals that are kept relatively lean, and that gives us our benchmark. And then we let them all, the rest of the animals, most of them become very fat. It's a big study, about a thousand or so animals. Once they get here, we throw out the bottom third. So now we have really fat animals. Then we take the remainder, we randomize them, either continue to eat adlibidum, they stay fat, or you might think of this as kind of like the uh, gastric sleeve or lap band group. They lose a lot of weight and keep it off, but they don't get all the way back down to normal. You might think of this as sort of like the Ruin Y group. They lose lots of weight all the way back down to normal and keep it off. And then this you might think of as, you know, your standard weight loss group. They lose weight, they regain it, they lose weight, they regain it, and so on. So we've done that now. We don't get them to cycle quite this rapidly, so our cycles look more like this in the real data. And Joe Vaselli is working with us, and Tony Ferrante is helping analyze some of the adipose tissue. Um, but I'll just show you the mortality rate. We haven't looked at the adipose tissue data yet. 
And what you see is that here are the, this is just the females, which have finished. The males are still going. They're almost done. The females who are ever obese live the shortest. And then you have these other groups. And here's you know, the, the never obese, the low-fat diet um, controls. And here are some of the others sort of in the middle. And what we see is this weight cycling group, which the epidemiologists tell us is terrible, right? But with which our ideas that say maybe feeling hungry is good tell us maybe it might be a good thing to have periodic bouts of negative energy balance. They don't do any worse than people who, than mice who <laughs> take the weight off and keep it off. So what this suggests is at least in mice, weight cycling is not bad. It's even good. It's not, we can't say it's better than losing the weight and keeping it off, but it's certainly not worse. And we're waiting to see the results in the males. What does this say about the possibility of achieving caloric restriction by mimetics? It's interesting, you know, usually we've reached for, in treating obesity, we've reached for anorexic agents, things that make people less hungry. But if perhaps part of the problem with eating too much is that you don't feel enough hunger, maybe that would have a counter effect. We can't assume, and shouldn't assume, that if we know there are benefits of weight loss from caloric restriction, which is how we've shown it, for example, in our rodents, that that necessarily will get the same benefit from weight loss induced by a drug or some other procedure. We need to empirically test that. What about orexigenic agents? What if we gave people or animals things that made them hungrier? Would that make them live longer? What about other um, potential mimetics? So this is from a study that just came out in, um, from the intervention testing program of the NIA. And we happen to have the good luck of being part of that study. And we had proposed that they use acrobos. And I had heard about acrobos from Joe Vaselli all these years at the New York Obesity Research Center. And I thought, well, this is kind of neat. Because acrobos in humans causes a very small amount of weight loss. It's mainly used for diabetes. It's not approved for as a weight loss drug. Mostly what it does is it slows down the absorption of carbohydrate in the intestine. It doesn't eliminate it, but it slows it down so that you spread it out a little bit more over time. And my very naive knowledge of physiology was, well, I keep hearing about how bad it is to have spikes in blood glucose. So maybe this would produce less spikes and it make animals live longer. So we proposed it. The NIA bought it. They tested it. And in fact, we got these really nice results in males. So in males, this is the acrobos animals, these are the other animals that made the males live much longer. In females, we did get a statistically significant result at the end, but a very small effect in females. We're not sure we understand why um, it has the effects it has, although we're starting to find some differences in its effects on testosterone and so on that we don't really understand, but they're trying to explore this some more. But this suggests that possibly without actually reducing the number of calories taken in, but spreading the absorption of those calories out over time might have an effect. I won't go through this in detail because it doesn't, I just show it to you for completeness. Metformin also seems to prolong lifespan in mice. We're not sure why. It's not perfectly consistent, but that's another possibility. Now here's Cybutramine, which was taken off the market, but um, we got, under the Freedom of Information Act, we were able to get these data from the FDA. So we got the raw data from the two-year uh, toxicology carcinogenicity studies for cybutramine, a weight loss drug. And we were able to show, even though cybutramine produced a dose-dependent reduction in body weight, presumably through suppressing appetite, we did not get the expected reduction in mortality rate. We couldn't find any reduction in mortality rate, even though we got reductions in food intake and weight that from the other animal literature we predict to give them. So at least in this one drug, it suggests the possibility that making the animals less hungry wasn't helpful. Of course, it could be the drug had other negative effects. We don't know. But that uh, merits further follow-up. What about the flip side? So we got this drug from Lilly. Lilly didn't, uh, wasn't going to use it anymore. It's a ghrelin agonist. <coughs> and they gave us the last molecule of it. And uh, we put it into mice. In this case, we used a short-lived Alzheimer's prone mouse so that we could have a faster result. We now have a study going on in ordinary mice. And what we did is we said, does this prevent the age-related decline in cognition that we see in these mice? So what we do is we give them the drug, they get hungry, and we've shown that they're hungry more lever pressing and so on. 
We give them the drug, they get hungrier, but we don't let them eat. So they are not calorically restricted in an absolute sense, but they're calorically restricted in a relative sense. They eat less than they would like to eat. This is the calorically restricted animal's body fat. These are the ghrelin animal's body fat. This is the control. So they don't have less or more fat, but they get less related, age-related cognitive decline, just like the calorically restricted animals on at least one of these water-based cognitive measures that goes down in these kinds of animals. So this is just very, very preliminary data. Don't take this too seriously. It was great for the media. They loved it. When our little tiny study came out, um, they went crazy. It was sort of like, you know, UAB investigators cure Alzheimer's disease with hunger, which was a pretty gross exaggeration. But it was, you know, enough good preliminary data, again, to get us a grant to study further. So then, these are the preliminary observations that build this kind of grand unified theory that we've talked about. I won't go through it again. That's what we proposed in our TR01. People liked it, so we think it has these important implications. That efforts to identify leverage points that affect perceptions of energetic uncertainty may be as or more important than identifying specific economic leverage points. In other words, instead of just saying, let's give people more money, or let's reduce the price of this food, or increase the price of that food, or what have you, it may be that we've really got to get to how people feel and how they perceive themselves and their place in society. And uh, it's funny because I'm often accused of being too closely associated with companies that market things. But the truth is, when I go through this, it makes me sound quite a bit like a libertarian Marxist, if such a thing is possible to be. Um, environmental manipulations which lead to the perception of restricted food availability may have paradoxical effects. So if we restrict food availability for people in certain circumstances, but don't restrict overall availability of food, which I think we're unlikely to do in a free environment, it may lead people to feel less secure, and that may create problems. Some caloric restriction memetics may need to work downstream of hunger signals to be effective. Now, I don't think very many people are going to volunteer to take something that makes them uncomfortably hungry for the rest of their lives and not eat, but they might volunteer to take something which acts downstream of that to achieve the same ultimate effect without the uncomfortable feelings if something like that could be developed. Even discounting side effects, losing weight with an anorexogen may be less beneficial than losing an equivalent amount of weight with caloric restriction. And I think we need to hold the FDAs and the pharmaceutical companies on our own feet to the fire that when we put out drugs, we need to not show, just show that they produce weight loss and assume weight loss, therefore, is good. We need to show that they reduce heart endpoints and increase lifespan. And finally, it's plausible that the perception of energetic uncertainty is a signal leading to adaptive responding that it both increases fat deposition when sufficient metabolizable energy is available and leads to increased lifespan if conditions are otherwise permissible. So we put together a team. This was a, our sort of all-star team that's going to go, that went after this transformative R01. And it was great fun to write. And I encourage you guys to go for these things. I've had a lot of people ask, okay, you know, what's the secret now? Tell me how to get it. And the only secret is you've got to apply for it. And there's a lot of luck involved. You know, I have no delusions to think that if I had submitted the same grant and got a different committee a week later, that we necessarily would have got it. It's a lot of luck involved, but like the New York Library says, you've got to be in it to win it. So I would say is have fun and try it. We wrote this grant at a time when I didn't need to have a grant. Right? So I, I was, had good funding and was in a relaxed position, and I said, let's just have fun. And I think that helped a lot because it helped us to write the grant we really wanted to write, which was then perceived to be, I think, a very creative Right. The NIHS is for logo, so that's our logo. Maybe you can help me with this. I think that's the Chinese symbol for uncertainty. At least that's what I'm told. Um, and these are the, you know, from Joseph's dream in the Bible with Pharaoh. These are the, the lean cows and the lean sorghum and the, the fat sorghum and the fat cows. And so I'll just end with this quotation from Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He says, let us take this path from the woods. If you come visit me in Alabama, you're all welcome. I'll be glad to take you to a uh, hike for some of our woods here. Thank you. Uh, yes? That was very interesting. Uh, just about the Acarbos experiment, um, I believe Acarbos also increases GLP-1. Um, so 
there may be some other mechanism going on there. I was wondering if you measured GLP-1 animals uh, in your animals. We have not yet, but I'm glad you mentioned that because I'm going to take that suggestion back and send it back to the NIA, and I'm sure that they will do that now because they're looking to really try to suss this out. Thank you. David, fascinating talk. Uh, I wonder what you think of the results showing that after bariatric surgery, people do seem to be living longer. Yes, there was studies showing that. And at the same time, we think that bariatric surgery causes a reduction in hunger, so it's as if we're giving them a drug. And yet, they're still living. How, how would you interpret that? So there are, there are at least two or three possible interpretations. One which I don't favor is that bariatric surgery isn't making people live longer, and it's only been shown in a few studies, and not every study shows it. I actually do agree with you. I think most of the studies show it, so that's not the interpretation in favor. The second possible interpretation is my hypothesis is wrong. I don't favor that interpretation either, but it could be. The third possibility, which is I think the most reasonable one, is that there are more than one factor involved, and there doesn't have to be a single mechanism whereby caloric restriction or weight loss or a drug or surgery produces effects and there can be multiple mechanisms and some of them at times may even be competing. Harry? Hey, do you see a, a difference or an interaction between the two factors of hunger and uncertainty? Or do you think that they're linked? I think they're linked, though I'm not sure I would I wouldn't go so far as to say how they're linked. That is I think when one experiences hunger one then has more uncertainty. Now exactly what those relationships are. Do you have to experience hunger for a prolonged time? Does that be a certain degree of intensity? Does that be hunger that's not immediately satisfied? Those things I don't know. If you look at the variability in outcomes in animal studies, do the A little bit. I don't think we have the complete data to really do it well, but we know that caloric restriction has a better effect on longevity the earlier it's introduced in life. You do get effects later in life, but the longer you go, the more they're diminished. I also think, though I'm not sure I can really unequivocally point to data that definitively show it, that the effects of lower socioeconomic status may be more profound earlier in life when sort of you're being set up and your, your sort of self-perceptions are being set up and so on. And so it may be that, you know, coming into great wealth as an adult may not have the same effect on your weight. Think about, you know, an Oprah or somebody as opposed to growing up in wealth. But again, these are speculations on my part. So David, as you point out, there are strains of mice where calorie restriction actually reduces lifespan. So would you predict that their um, you know, the measures of food security would be different in those animals? In other words, would they be more secure and not sort of susceptible to the same sort of dominant submission that you saw in the Yeah, it may be, and I don't know. That's an interesting question. I have to think about whether we should try to test that. What I think is probably true is that for almost all mammals, there's some sort of U-shaped, or more generally, you might say, convex relationship between amount of calories in and lifespan. Right? No calories, you die of starvation. Way too much, you get obesity in short life. But where that nadir of the U lands probably varies a lot from species to species, strain to strain. And I think what happens is when we don't sample a lot of different calorie restriction levels, it may be that what looks like calorie restriction is helpful for one strain harmful for another really may be just that you sample different parts of their curve because their natives are at different spots. So I think we've got to study that soon. We have a group waiting for the room, so let's have one more question. And then, did you have a question? I did have a question. Did you intervened out here. Ah, so that was wonderful, David. Um, you look, how, in, in these analyses of socioeconomic states, how do you, can you, look at sort of the epigenetic effects. These babies were clearly conceived in lower socioeconomic groups. Do you analyze the data anyway for effects of maternal stress, things that might influence histones, DNA methylation, et cetera? 
we could probably go back and look at some subjective measures of social stress that we haven't. Um, I don't think in either of those two studies anybody collected any biological material that could be easily used for looking at epigenetic methylation type of signals. But I think going forward in future studies, it's an interesting idea worth looking at.